Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel Record of Luke. The Gospel Record of Luke and chapter number 18. The Gospel Record of Luke and chapter number 18. If you remember the context, the Lord Jesus Christ has been making His way to Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to be betrayed, put on a false trial. He's going to be scourged and beaten, crucified on a cruel cross, buried, and then rise again the third day. Jesus knowing this is going to happen, but he's using this time on the road to Jerusalem to prepare and teach his disciples, to give them the last minute training, and also deal with the Pharisees who are ever present. And as the Lord Jesus Christ is continuing to work with both his disciples and the Pharisees, he comes to chapter number 18 and he continues to teach some lessons. This lesson is, happens to be about prayer. And he gives two different parables that deal with the subject of prayer. And so if you wouldn't mind, look with me in the gospel record of Luke in chapter number 18. The gospel record of Luke chapter 18, and notice with me in verse number 1. The Bible says this, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray, and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. She came unto him, saying, Avenge my, me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, he shall, find, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the Gospel record of Luke in chapter 18? The Gospel record of Luke chapter 18, and notice the phrase where it says, Men ought always to pray. Men ought always to pray. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you're a God who already has the prayers already answered even before we have a need of them. And I'm thankful that we could come up to you knowing that you're a God who will work, that you are a just God and righteous and do it right the first time. You're a God who's always doing something. I'm so thankful for it. Help us to be obedient to you because of how we see you, because of whom you are, and that we would learn this principle that we're always to pray and that it's never wasted time, it's never wasted effort to pray and to talk to you and to ask you to work. Lord, help us even now to strengthen our own walk with you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Now when we come into the gospel record of Luke chapter 18, we find right away that we have to pay attention to the sentence, the grammar, and how things are structured. What do I mean by that? Notice the very first word of chapter 18 in verse 1. We have the word and. Remember chapter and verse divisions were added later and unfortunately at times they put a break of thought where there's no break of thought necessary. So when it says the word and that means he is continuing with what he has already been speaking with. Now what's the context? Well if you remember Jesus Christ is talking with the Pharisees and he's talking to the disciples. The Pharisees had asked God Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When is it going to be formed? Jesus gives a smart, uh, small remark to them, then turns to the disciples with the Pharisees listening on, and he begins to teach the disciples. And he begins to teach the disciples some things about the last days, and speaking that there's going to be troubles, and there's going to be trials, and the rest of the world is going to continue to live their life, that you are either going to live your best life now, or you're going to live your best life later. You cannot do both. And he went and put the emphasis that those people in Noah's day, they were not, it didn't put an emphasis on their sin. It put an emphasis that they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and getting married. They were getting involved with their life and trying to make the life that they had the best life. And then destruction came. And they couldn't bring that best life with them. And they suffered destruction. We know that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives the illustration of Lot's day. And once again, it didn't put an emphasis on their sin. It's that they were trying to live their best life now. That they were eating and drinking and that they were buying property and selling property. And they were running businesses. They were doing everything to have their best life now. And then destruction came. And that life was over. And the emphasis he was placing over and over is that you will either live your best life now or you'll live your best life later. You cannot do both. 
Now, if you choose to give your best life forward, we know that there's going to be opposition. And towards the tail end, he started to talk about the rapture, which is the next event on God's calendar that God is going to call us away, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and us that are alive and remain shall meet him together up in the air. And then after the rapture, there's going to be a time here on earth where God is going to be working to bring the Hebrew people back to himself. And there's going to be a judgment like no other. That the Hebrew people and everyone who helps the Hebrew people are going to suffer the greatest persecution ever in human history. That's explained later on, but that's the context. And so with that in mind, that the world is increasingly against God's people. And the world is putting pressure on God's people. And the world is more unjust to God's people. That Jesus goes with that same thought and says, And then he teaches this parable to this end. (laughs) That uh, he spake a parable unto them. Who's the them there? He's speaking to the disciples. To the disciples. the, The ones that are following after God. The ones that are going to be under the persecution. Under the opposition. By the way, he is speaking to his disciples. Who every one of them, except for two. One of them will betray Jesus. And the other one will live a natural life. Everyone except for two of those 12 disciples. Main apostles. Are going to suffer martyrdom. They're going to suffer in a world that is going to be increasingly against them. And by the way, we have a small little respite here in America. But the persecution is already beginning. That the pressure is already on. And this passage is for us as more and more pressure is going to be put upon us. More and more unjustness is going to happen. That we're going to be more and more outnumbered by the unrighteous. This is the parable that Jesus gave to us to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. You understand this passage is not just saying, well, if I want a candy bar, if I bug God enough that I'll get the candy bar. What it is saying is that when you're in the persecution and the pressure is getting on, that you need to be in the habit of praying and talking to God, even when it seems like the pressure increases rather than decreases, that you ought always to pray and not to faint. And he gives these parables with this idea that we're not supposed to wipe our hands and say, all right, well, prayer's not working. I need to try something else. I need to go to God and trust that he knows what he's doing. He's going to work. He's always at work. And I need to keep praying Even though the world is increasingly against us. That I am not to cease. So we have to understand that these parables here about prayer. Is in a context that is quite important for us to get the right understanding. It starts with the word and. And so Jesus gives two different parables. That have the concerns of prayer. That carry the purpose that we're always to pray and not to faint. And to give us some tools and remembrances For us to pray the way that we ought. The first parable we come to is the parable of the unjust judge. The parable of the unjust judge. Now in this first parable it introduces a judge. Notice with me in verse 2. Saying there was in a city a judge which feared not God neither regarded man. So once again, we immediately see there is something taught here about this judge. Here is a judge who is not right with God. He's actually a judge who doesn't care what God thinks. And if we were to pause 
isn't that increasingly true in our country? That we have judges who do not care what the law says or what God says. That they said, if we don't like the law, we'll change the law within our courtrooms. And so here is a judge who doesn't care about what's doing right. He doesn't care what man says. And he definitely doesn't care what God says. So we've learned something about his character. He is an unjust judge. We know that the Roman government had given liberty to the Jewish people to judge their own legal matters. So a judge is going to be a very powerful man within the political structure of Israel at this time. He's someone who says, I have all the power. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody is over me. I make the law. I determine what's right. Now because of this, the legal system at this time was a very corrupt legal system. And more often than not, the judge, in order to get a right ruling, was bribed and paid off. And so it's not a court based off of righteousness. It's a court ruled off of power and political favors and money and all the things that go with it. Then we're introduced to a second person, not only a judge, but we're introduced to a widow. Now notice what the Bible says about the widow, verse 3. And there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. Now a widow in this case, is going to be a little bit different than what we would think of a widow. When we think of a widow in America, we think of some senior saint, some elderly woman. But may I remind you that in this day, things worked a little bit different. That girls were married when they were young teenagers. They were already married. They were usually married to someone who was already older. Before they could get married, according to the climate there, the man had to have a job. Had to have a house of his own and have everything paid before he could go get married. We should probably start that again, right? But anyways. So, but, so he could be in his 30s and 40s when he finally marries a young lady who would probably be 14 or 15 years old. So when he would die, she would still be fairly young. Maybe in her t- late 20s, maybe in her 30s, maybe even to her 40s. So it's not a gray-haired widow woman. He, she's a lady who still has lots of life left. But the problem was, is that <laughs> these ladies would be very vulnerable. In times of the Bible, it would talk about that they would devour widows' houses. And it would give several ideas of this, that the widows would be very vulnerable to legal action and they would be uh, um, um, vulnerable to other kind of pressures. Why would they be so open? (laughs) Why would they be so vulnerable? Well, widows did not have many rights in that day. They would be very much dependent upon others. For example, in legal matters, it was not permissible for a woman to represent herself in court. So for a widow woman, she no longer has a husband. Her husband's died. So her husband can't represent her in court. In fact, in the Middle East, it's still this way. A woman cannot uh, represent herself in court. She has to have a male to represent her. And so here's a widow woman who's in trouble. And by the circumstances listed here, she doesn't have a son who's able to 
represent her. She doesn't have a family member who is able to represent her. So here's a woman who's not allowed to present a case and she is in legal trouble. Now, what kind of legal trouble? Well, more than likely a common thing that would happen in this day would be that because of the way that the (coughs) marriages worked, the wife would be a lot younger than the husband. And so they would have an agreement, a cultural agreement, that when the husband died, the family estate would not go to the woman, go to the widow. It was not permissible for an inheritance to go directly to the widow. But instead, the inheritance, the estate, would go to the family of the deceased husband. And normally by culture, they would have set up like a prenuptial agreement, something in advance that when the husband dies, the estate would take care of the widow woman for a certain amount of time. And that they would be, let her stay in the house for that time and give her a little stipend or make sure she was taken care of. But once that agreement was done, the widow woman would often be kicked out of the house and the house would go back to the family as well as the lands and everything else and be in full control. And the widow woman would be on her own to take care of her for the rest of her life. And so she'd be very vulnerable. And so in this case, probably what has happened, we don't know for sure, but just speculating based off of culture and things happen, is that the family of her late husband is not going on their agreement. They're kicking her out of the house early. Maybe they're taking the possessions early or they're not providing the stipend. And now she's at a place where bill collectors or other people are coming and she has got adversaries. She's got people against her. And what is rightfully due to her is not given to her. And she's getting further and further in trouble. And she's at a dangerous spot. So here's a woman who the family estate Let's presume, let's go with this story. It could be something else, but let's presume this. That the family is after her and they're trying to kick her out early. They're not living up to their end of the bargain. She has no male to represent her. So she legally is not supposed to be able to go and represent herself in court. She can't bring the thing up to the judge herself. She can't file a motion. She can't do anything. In addition, because of this problem, she doesn't have enough money to pay the bribe. And so the judge has no reason to see her whatsoever. She is stuck. She's in trouble. But something has to be done. Now, to compound the matter is that courts are not orderly things that we have in America. You know, you think in your mind, a court, the, the, the judge comes in, everyone stands, the bailiff guards him and does whatever the, the judge says. He gets the gavel order in the court if someone says something and the bailiff, you know, removes them out. That's not how courts work back then. In fact, most of the time they weren't even inside. Most of the time people would handle legal matters right outside the gates of the city. That's where the marketplace would be. That's where everyone would gather. And so when the judge would arrive, he would often just stand and the people would flock to him and say, judge, judge, judge. And it would be a thing of chaos, not of order. And whoever could get the judge's attention would have their case heard. And so there would be a lot of pushing, a lot of shoving, a lot of fighting, a lot of whatever else. And in the midst of this, here's a widow woman who has no male to represent her that she comes up, Judge! 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 Hey, I need your help! And she's just always at it. 
day after day, she is continually after this judge, trying to get his attention, trying to get him to hear. And he keeps pushing her off. She has no money to give. Why should I listen to her? Why should I take my time? There's no benefit to me. She doesn't help me out. She has no male to represent her. I don't have to hear. Judge! 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 I need your help! Help me! Help me! And she's having to do everything she can to get attention from this judge. Notice as the Bible goes on. In verse number 3. And there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not. So the judge would not for a while. So this is not just a one time thing where she comes and the judge ignores her and she walks away. It's not a one time thing where he says, listen, case dismissed, bailiff, take her away. But she is constantly in his face. Judge! 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 I need your help! Judge! Judge! And he ignores her and tries to put her off, tries to set her aside. And it says he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man. That's a powerful statement. He says, listen, I'm not doing this because I care about anybody else. And I'm definitely not doing because I care what God says. Why is he going to take this lady's case and hear her? He says, yet because this widow troubleth me. Because she won't let go. Because she won't stop. Because she keeps bothering him. (laughs) He says, this widow troubleth me. I will avenge her. I'm going to hear her case. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to help her out. It's going to do nothing for me. But I'm going to take care of this. Lest by her continual coming, she weary me. This word weary is an interesting word. It actually comes from the sporting world. It comes with a picture of giving someone a black eye. And so what is happening is that this lady just keeps going and keeps going. And the judge feels like, man, she won't be quiet. And she's just wearing me down. And I'm getting beat up just by this lady always showing up. And I, you know, she's just hooking me and giving me a black eye and getting me. And she just won't, I just want her to go away. And I know that if I take care of this, I'll still have chaos. But I won't have her voice squawking at me anymore. I just got to... I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to help her out. Now, the Bible points out that this is an unjust judge. Remember that our God is not unjust. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is right. But this is a human story reflecting something. Verse number six. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith. What did he say? He says, I'm Turning it over because of this woman who's always squawking because things are not right around her. I don't care about what's right or not. i just tired of her squawking. Now, this is an unjust judge. Notice in verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him though he bear long with them? Now, there's a lot packed in here. Notice this, the context in the immediate context is talking about the tribulation time. And in the tribulation time when the Antichrist and his forces are oppressing and the worst persecution the Hebrew people have ever had and anybody who helped the Hebrew people would also be under this persecution. 
that the Hebrew people are crying night and day, God, please do something. God, please do something. God, please do something. God, please do something. We understand that in the tribulation thing, when God does something, Jesus Christ is coming back, riding on a white horse. And all those saints who died before and was raptured away are coming with him. And Jesus will judge the earth. And when that earth is judged, God will avenge all the people who were against the Hebrew people. And he will destroy them right then and there. When he comes back, business will get taken care of. But notice something else that he said here. Shall not God avenge his own elect which cry night and day unto him, though he, God, bear long with him. That word bear long is the same term that is used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and or chapter 3 and verse 9 where it says, the Lord is not slack concerning the promises as some men count slack, uh, slack but as long suffering towards us word, not willing that any shall perish but all should come to repentance. Why does God suffer long with a world that's getting more and more unjust? Because he's trying to see as many people saved as possible. That he allows his very elect, his chosen people, to go through awful times and increasing more persecution and increasing times where the world's more against him. Why? Because he wants to see as many of those wicked people saved as possible. Because when he comes, it will be sudden. You know, the Bible never says that Jesus is coming soon. But it always say that God is coming suddenly. He's coming without warning. And the whole reason why he hasn't come back yet is because he's still wanting people to get saved. And once he answers the prayer, God, do something about the wicked. Do something about the wicked. When he does, it is done completely and it is done right. But may I say that their crying to the Lord is not in vain? Because God is always at work. That is, we're praying for revival and we're praying for our country. We have a God who's still working to see people get saved. As we're praying that God would change the laws and God would put the right people and God would touch the hearts of our leaders, God is working to try to bring them to himself. You understand that we all look at the persecution and we look at our hard times, but God is looking at the bigger picture. And he's not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. That God is staying his hand and allowing his people to suffer because he still wants to see people get saved. But he says, I'm letting you know that even though it seems like God is waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting, that God is still at work. And that you're not to stop praying. You're still not to stop crying. It's not wasted time. Your prayers are not in vain. That God is at work. And God is a righteous judge. And he will take care of it all. He spake a parable unto this end. That men ought always to pray. And not to faint. Remember that word faint is a Bible word that means quit. Don't quit praying. We've been praying for revival. And it seems our country's getting worse. Don't quit praying. We've been praying for things to turn around and it doesn't seem to be working. Don't quit praying. You understand? God is always at work. God 
is always at work. And the more that you pray, the more you could trust that God is working in this world. And we're looking up to Him. And your prayers are not in vain. God knows what He's doing. With this, Jesus now hits a second parable. And we see the parable of the Pharisees' prayers. The parable of the Pharisees' prayers. In fact, before we go there, may I show you one more telling statement of that last idea? Verse number 8. I tell you that he, God, will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? It means when Jesus Christ comes back, will he find people praying? Or will he find people that gave up? Stop praying. Will people be able to trust God even when it doesn't seem like things are changing? That's an idea of faith. God is still working even though I may not see it. God's still at work. God's still at work. Will he find us praying? We understand the next event on God's calendar is the rapture. When Jesus comes back, will you be in the midst of either leading someone to the Lord or praying that people would get saved? That's how God wants us to be found. Praying that God would do a work. And letting God do the work through us. Will he find that faith. That God is not willing that any should perish. But all should come to repentance. Then we come to the second thing. The parable of the Pharisees prayers. Now remember there are two audiences. That are listening to Jesus at the time. He has the disciples who he's been working and speaking directly to. But he has the Pharisees who are listening in. And the Pharisees are listening to this point. And so Jesus hits a second parable. But notice what he says the reason for this parable is. The first parable is for men to always to pray and not to faint. Notice the second audience and what he brings up verse number 9. And he, Jesus, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. If you want a definition of the Pharisee, there you go. They trusted in themselves and despised others. They, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised everyone else because they weren't as righteous as them. So Jesus now changes the prayer audience from the disciples to the Pharisees. And looking them straight in the eyeballs, he says, Oh, I got a lesson about prayer for you too. Let me tell you about it. And so notice, if you don't mind, we start off. And once again, we have two people, two individuals that are brought up in this prayer. The first parable was talking about an unjust judge and a widow woman. Now we have a Pharisee and a publican. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse number 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a publican. <clears throat> now, as the Pharisees are listening in, Jesus is now telling a story about us. Now, remember, we see things from our 20th century view. We know the end of the story. We know the Pharisees are the bad guys. Without a doubt, we've seen that. But in Jesus' day, to the audience listening, the Pharisees were the good guys. 
And so as this is set up, it's set up with the idea that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. But the audience think it's switched from what it is. So there's a Pharisee. A Pharisee is someone who is hyper-religious. That they do all the things right. They're the ones before the crowd. People look at them and go, oh, that's Mr. Righteous. Look at how they talk. Look at how they walk. Look at how they dress. Oh, look at the outside. They're what righteousness looks like. Then you had a publican. Remember a publican was a collaborator with the Roman government. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, were not a fan of the Roman government. The Roman government had not conquered them. They had been sold out. And so there was a lot of bitterness towards the Roman government that the Roman government were ruling them unrighteously. And then to make it worse, you would have collaborators Jewish people who would work with the Roman government to make things worse for the Jewish people. And most of the publicans were tax collectors. No one likes a tax collector. But these people would take money from the Jewish people, take the money, take a bunch for themselves, then give some to finance the Roman government to keep oppressing them. So when you start off to the regular Hebrew audience... At Jesus' day, you have a good guy and a bad guy. You have the Pharisee who looks as right with God as you possibly can. That, oh, look at all the religious things he does. And then you have the Pharisee, the no good scumbag, collaborating, sold out their own people. Now you got these two people going to pray. And so immediately in the audience's mind, you have a righteous person and a filthy scumbag extortioner. And so Jesus is going to talk about the prayer life of the religious guy and the scumbag. And so he continues with the story. Notice with me in verse 11. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That's an interesting phrase. We'll get to that in a second. But notice that phrase. He says... God. So what a Pharisee would do is that they would go out and they would stand. Now they like to stand anyways, but they would get to the temple and they would have a special platform that they would stand on. So if you can imagine he's standing on a platform, everyone's looking at the Pharisee and the Pharisee says, let's please pray. Watch me as I pray. God, I thank thee. Spurgeon said, this is the only time where someone thanked God never got around to thanking God. He says, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. God, I'm coming to you to let you know how great I am. And I thank you that I'm not a scumbag and I'm not a sinner. I thank you that you made me a Pharisee. I'm thankful that I'm so righteous and so good and so awesome. Everyone should touch me. Quick, touch me, touch me. Look at how great and wonderful I am. God, thank you for making me me. And he's prayed with himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. Even as this publican. So as he's praying. Remember he's actually talking to the crowd. Praising himself. And he's talking to the crowd. Look at how righteous and great I am. I'm not like this guy here. Everyone behold how great I am. How righteous I am. And there's the other choice. The scumbag. And so at this time. The normal crowd who would hear the Pharisee would say. Wow. They can really pray. 
Wow. That's pretty, those are, that, that's a wonderful prayer. I need to learn how to pray like that. By the way, this is how people pray all the time. We all know people that when they pray at the end of a service, they'll get out loud and they'll say a sermon. And they're talking to the people and not to God. And they're trying to tell the people how smart and how spiritual I am. And listen to my flowery words and I'll even throw Bible verses in. And everyone acknowledge how spiritual I am in my prayer. Please recognize. And then after in, they want people to come and say, oh, what a wonderful prayer. I mean, I didn't know you were that close to God. That, that was amazing. Wow, I really, you fixed me with your prayer. I changed my whole point of view when you prayed. People do that. They like to show how smart and spiritual they are. They may not try to directly talk to the Pharisees, but they're Pharisaical in their prayer because they're not talking to God at all. They're talking to the crowd and letting everyone listen how spiritual they are and not like you. Notice as the Pharisee goes on, I fast twice in a week. Now, for religiously, according to the law, the, the Israelite people, they only were required to fast once a year. And so here's the Pharisee. <laughs> I do more than that. I fast twice in a week because I'm so close with God. I could do that. I take two days and I just dedicate to prayer. And I pray just like this. Two days where I say, God, thank you for making me me. And oh, it's so wonderful. He says, I fast two days. Then not as that, I give tithes. Notice the tithes are plural. He says, I just don't give one tithe. I give two tithes. Remember, a tithe is 10%. He says, I don't just give 10%. I give 20%. That's how religious I am. I'm so right with God. I give another 10% above what I'm supposed to give. Because I'm that righteous. Everyone acknowledge. Remember that Jesus had pointed out that they, they were so fanatical about their tithing that they would actually go to the herb garden. Oh, look, I got a crop of mints in. All right, 10% of that goes to God. Look, I tithe off my flowers. Preacher, I decided to tithe off my dandelions this year. And so here's my tithe. And I'm going to give that to God. See how spiritual I am? I'm not giving money, but I'll give you my dandelions. <laughs> and he's praying this out loud. And everyone's looking up to him and said, Wow, Mr. Pharisee, you are the righteous person of all. Man, you are so spiritual. Look at all the activity you do. Look at everything you do. And he's showing off. But then we have the other guy. Now remember, at this time, the people are listening to this story and they're thinking the Pharisee is the good one. And then the publican prays, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift so much his eyes into heaven. He realizes he's a sinner. And he's like, I can't even look at God. I know that I'm a failure. I know that I messed up. And the only thing he could do was smite his breast. Say, God, be merciful to me. Lord, I'm a sinner and I messed up. I'm not, I'm not worthy of your love. Now, when Jesus gives this before he goes on, the conclusion is drawn. The Pharisee is so close to God. Look at how he prays. Look at how wonderful he is. There's no way. If, if we were to go to heaven right now, the Pharisee would be just a shoe in. He'd have no problems. But the, the publican, look at him. He knows he's not going to heaven. 
That's why he's smiting his breast. Lord, be merciful to me. Look, he knows he's not going. He knows he's cooked. He knows there's no hope for him. That's how people would look at him. But then Jesus gives the conclusion of this matter. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The word justified is a religious term. It means just as if he had never sinned. He was declared righteously righteous and perfect righteousness. Now, at this time, before Jesus goes on, the people would say, okay, well, he, I guess he repented. He, he talked to God. But you know what? He kind of barely made it in. But the Pharisee, he's a shoo-in. He's had no problem. I mean, it just no problem whatsoever. But Jesus continues to go on. He says, I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbled himself should be exalted. Now remember at the very beginning of this parable. People thought the Pharisee was the good guy. And the publican was the bad guy. But when Jesus points out what's actually happened. He shows that the publican is right before God. And the Pharisee is not. Now remember this is dealing with prayer. How do we apply this to prayer? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me if you don't mind. We're coming back here. But turn with me if you don't mind. <laughs> Actually, we're, we'll just end up here. Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And I want to show you something. The book of Habakkuk. Found within the Minor Prophets. If you take Matthew... And turn the other direction. You'll eventually run into Habakkuk. Matthew. Malachi. Uh, <coughs> Zechariah. Haggai. Zephaniah. Habakkuk. Habakkuk in chapter number 1. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. I want you to look at this. And so I want everyone to take their time to look through it. I'll be patient. Because I want you to see this. This is direct application of what Jesus Christ was saying. And we're going to tie it into our prayer life. Now Jesus started with the first parable. That men ought to always to pray and not to faint. So not to quit praying. Even though it may not seem it's working. That even though the world's unjust. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Because God's always at work. But notice this in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. Now, of course, that's a famous verse that we see four times in the Bible, three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. In chapter uh, 2, in verse number 4, we actually see a definition here that helps us out. Most of the time, if we were to say, what is the opposite of faith? The knee-jerk reaction would be, um, <coughs> would be disbelief. That the opposite of faith is disbelief. But according to this passage here, that's not the right answer. What is the opposite of faith according to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4? Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The opposite of faith is pride. The opposite of faith is pride. Because you are either trusting in God or you're trusting in someone 
else. The publican realized there was nothing he could do. He was so far from living righteously, there was nothing he could do. He could never catch back up. He was just done. His only hope was if God showed him mercy. He could not do it. Only God could. Public, uh, the Pharisee, instead of trusting in God, he was trusting in himself. That's what Jesus had said. He gave this parable to those that had trusted in themselves in righteousness and not looking to God and despising others. The opposite of faith is pride. Now, as we're applying it to prayer, our prayers should be dependent upon God. That it all begins with God. It all ends with God. God is the goal. God, I can't do this. You have to work. I can't even help do this. It has to be you. If you want to use me as an instrument, that's fine. But it's all on you. God, you have to work. How many of our prayers are pride prayers? Lord, you know how much I try. Lord, you know how I do. Lord, you see everything that I try to get accomplished. Lord, you see my smile. Lord, you see my intentions. Lord, you know how much I. And we have I, 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 me, me, me. And it's not, Lord, be merciful to me. It's about me and not about God. Lord, help my plans. Lord, help me feel better. Lord, help me, help me. The opposite of faith is pride. And even in our prayers, so much of it is dependent upon ourselves and not dependent upon God at all. And so Jesus is teaching two things about prayer that are necessary. The first one is that we're supposed to be praying because God is always at work. The second principle, it's all dependent upon God and not me. You see, everything starts with our vision of God. Is God always at work? Then it affects your prayers. If you feel like you have to twist God's arm and convince him and to kick him and to bribe him, then after a while when it doesn't seem to work, you'll quit praying. Amen. And then do you see God is absolutely necessary? God, I need a car. And then you go buy yourself a car. Who answered your prayer? So many times we try to get God on board on what we're doing. Lord, help my efforts. Well, is it what God's given you to do in the first place? It all begins with God. And the matter of our prayer is how do we see God? Is he big? Is he available? Is he always at work? Is he working? It changes how we pray. Because we can pray that it's all about me. And God, I want you to help me. Get on board with what I have. Lord, help my plans. Help my desires. Help me. And we're trying to get God to do what we want to do. Or we can say, Lord, I'm useless. I don't know. It. I don't even have enough information. I don't have enough sense to get out of the rain. I just, 
I need you. I just need you help. Lord, help. It's you. You're always at work. You're doing things that I can't even see. I don't have enough information. I don't even know what you're doing. But I'm trusting that you're at work. And it has to be you that does it or it fails. It has to be you that does it or it falls apart. Lord, it has to be you and it's not me. And please just get me out of the way. Because if I'm in the way, it's going to ruin. Lord, it has to be you. It changes how we pray. And as the context of Luke 18 That the world is going to get more and more unjust. The world is going to be more and more oppressive. And our response is not doing more things. Our response isn't trying to be more things. Our response is going to God and say, God, it has to be you. You have to work. What we need to learn is get back to being dependent upon God. Instead of trying to conjole, trick force, make God do what we think he should do. Let God do his own work and we're dependent upon him. It changes everything about how we pray. It changes everything about how we respond to God. You understand your prayer life is a great indicator of what you trust in. Sometimes it's the absence of prayer that shows what you're trusting in. Why don't we pray more? Because we don't feel like we need to. Because we could handle it ourselves. And we're not depending on God. The opposite of faith is pride. You are either trusting in God or you're trusting in yourself. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.